Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast, the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. I'm your host, Megan Cole. And Writing the Coast is the place where you can go to hear conversations with the authors and illustrators whose books make up the shortlist for the annual prizes. In this episode, I spoke to Alex Leslie. Alex's book of short stories, We All Need to Eat, was shortlisted for the 2019 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. And this fall, Alex also celebrated the release of a new book of poetry called Vancouver for Beginners. I need to preface my conversation with Alex with a little bit of a warning or disclaimer. I used a new microphone for my conversation with Alex. And of course, there were some technology hiccups. Um, I've since fixed those, so they will not be present for future conversations. And I was able to edit some of it out in my post-production. But if you hear any funky things, that's what's going on. So that's it for disclaimers and warnings. And here is my conversation with Alex Leslie. Did the writing come first or the social work come first? Oh, the writing definitely came first. Like, um, I started publishing in my early 20s in journals. And then um, my first book of stories came out. Like, I think I was like 26 or 27. And then after that, I got my, my graduate degree um, in social work. Um, and um, yeah, so the writing definitely came first, but the social work interest came out of writing related stuff because I ended up um, working for several years for a program called Megaphone Magazine, yeah. which is like a street newspaper in Vancouver. And they have a writing workshop program in like detoxes and homeless shelters and stuff like that. I ended up working with them for years and deciding to get a master's in social work. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's like an intertwined, kind of an intertwined paths. But, but yeah, I always wanted to be a writer. That, that was my thing from when I was like a tiny little child. Yeah. And I'm sure working in that environment must influence your writing too. Um, I mean, it can, Um, but I find that I write about a lot of things that are separate from my work probably is a way sometimes to have balance or it's just what I'm naturally drawn to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I definitely like have been influenced in some things I've written, um, by my work. And an interesting thing though, also about working in the health system is that, you sort of, you can, I mean, there are people who do this in nonfiction. I'm not sure how they get the, <laughs> get work around this ethically, but I would never write anything that would like reveal anything confidential about anyone. Yeah. 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 So there's always this sort of wall, right. Of like, I can maybe, maybe I would write about my experience, but there's a lot that you can just never write about. Yeah, for sure. Like 99%. It's kind of like, being in the FBI, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. <laughs> Something I was really interested in when um, when I was reading your books, it was kind of the the ra- way that place played into both of them because you're from Vancouver, born and raised in Vancouver, and I found that really interesting how 
place almost wasn't just a setting. In some cases, it almost felt felt a bit like a character. Mm. Was that a conscious thing, or is it just you think you, Vancouver has permeated you in such a way that you can't, you can't <laughs> help it anymore? <laughs> I'm in a like long term relationship with Vancouver. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, I I think that the way that um the city and also like the like the coast um and probably more in my first two books um well definitely in vancouver for beginners Mm -hmm. plays um a role is really really that role is really central i find that um i'm very kind of drawn to writing about characters who are in extreme emotional situations and I think that writing because I set my writing in Vancouver I tend to maybe invest a lot in the emotionality of the weather and the place Mm -hmm. um I mean Vancouver for beginners which like just came out was like a it was like my first conscious attempt to like describe Vancouver in a book in my other writing it's more like this is what's like this is where it's set so it's going to be described Mm -hmm. whereas Vancouver for beginners is like quite explicitly trying to describe trying to describe the place and um depict it Mm -hmm. you know what I mean yeah yeah I don't know if I I answered your question. <laughs> I think you did. Well, maybe okay. maybe I'll get you to actually uh, read a little something for me, if you don't mind, and then we can maybe go into this Vancouver thing a bit more. Sure. Yeah. How about I read the opening poem of Vancouver for Beginners called Rainforest Paradise? Sure. Yeah. Okay. And I'll just say Rainforest Paradise because part of the thing that I discuss in this book is or I try to talk about in this book is all of the cliches and stereotypes about Vancouver that I've really grown up with. And so like things like gateway to the Pacific and like left coast and stuff like that. Yeah. So this term rainforest paradise is the, yeah, the title of this one in kind of a, like a wry way. Now that there is no weather, there are only trends, roots, knit and urban basket. This was all forest way back when, old growth towers, glass swan spines. Public parks and buckets line the curbs for pickup. Recycling Mecca, whose residents eat compost with full cream and push the poor from rooftop gardens into moss that flows from the lips of dumpsters, ocean dreaming in the background. Mountains offering shadows to lean into, a sheltered city pillaged for bed frames. The forest's understory inhales, creeks shout from the manholes. On public transit, a wave sound meditation CD has been playing on loop for 180 years. Born into this misty static, residents swing axes at each other's angles, ankles and fall like saplings into Taiwan-bound barges and post-industrial wet dreams, into hammocks knit from track-marked cedar branches. Hydroponic lovers nest in shore phone booths A bulldozer uncurls its sleepy head and splits the street open with an egg tooth. 
At night, raccoons patrol the valleys and alleyways with the cops. Obligatory ravens wing wing to wing down the wires, and a man pushes a shopping cart full of huckleberry plants, salal, and prehistoric ferns towards the bottle depot. On his off nights, he is a flamethrower. Thank you. You're welcome. I I was really struck by, um, when I was reading Vancouver for Beginners, how there seemed to be this uh, playing with like contrast and dualities. Um, yeah. And it, we really get a sense of that in uh, in Rainforest for Beginners, or uh, Rainforest Paradise. <laughs> I wanted to call it Rainforest for Beginners. For beginners. <laughs> Paradise for Beginners. Yeah. 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 So how did you decide to kind of to play with those contrasts and the juxtaposition that is so, you know, if for anyone who's lived in Vancouver, it's very palpable there. Do you mean distinctions like dualities, like, like, um, like poverty and wealth and even like how it seemed like, um, there was a play between like nature and constructed landscapes and like also I kind of just noticed that in between, um, even where you're in that one you just read in Rainforest Paradise, how you have the man pushing a shopping cart full of huckleberry plants, salal, and prehistoric ferns. It's kind of these two things that don't quite fit together, but just kind of do at the same time. Yeah, I think that Vancouver, for me, is always this sort of strange landscape because I think that we're always sort of being overcome by um, by the natural world here and sort of failing to we'll, we'll always fail to suppress it so like for example someone told me about how like if the seawall they tried to build the seawall now it would never pass code because it's basically crumbling into the ocean yeah <laughs> So things like this in Vancouver, where it's like, it's so beautiful, we're so close to nature, like, drive up the Sea to Sky Highway, and then you, like, drive up, you know, they did, like, that massive construction project because the mountain was falling onto the highway. So there's something about, like, kind of the um, precariousness of, like, continuously building and trying to, like, harness and harness like the ocean, the mountains, the forest here, um, and especially with climate change, that's only going to intensify, right? Where it's yeah. like Richmond is going to be underwater, you know, at some point. And, you know, Richmond was underwater. It was built up out of water through a diking system. Yeah. So I think for me, um, having grown up here and also having spent a lot of time, like different parts of the coast in Vancouver Island, for me, I think there's just like that, like awareness that, like, this is very much like a constructed landscape. Yeah. And um, what really is real is like the the ocean and the plants and you know like you know that like uh, False Creek used to go to Clark. Um, like that was all built. Like, yeah. where it, like, now stops at whatever science world. Like, that was all, like, built up, so it would stop there. So, and I think I've mentioned that somewhere in the book. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I I noted the part where you said uh, on that um, you're an uninvited visitor because I noticed you mentioned that in your acknowledgments as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was important to me as um, a settler writing a book called Vancouver for Beginners. I wanted to acknowledge that in the book that this is not a book that like lays any claim or claims any sense of like you know some essentialist notion of home or you know this is where I'm capital F from um because like white canlet does have a history of that of like romanticizing landscape and like imbuing landscape with like white human kind of consciousness and emotion um, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted the poems to not romanticize Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to, like, be quite clear, like, you know, that there's an acknowledgement. This is, like, unceded territory that was, like, never given up by Indigenous people. Um, and also, like, as a person who grew up here and, like, grew up you know I went to the public school system all the way through and um there really wasn't education about that at all when I was growing up like we were like not taught about the indigenous history of Vancouver the only thing I remember is like making quote-unquote bannock (laughs) at some like (laughs) terrible field trip to the museum of anthropology And um, I do remember when I would visit family on Vancouver Island, having more of an awareness there, just because in small towns, um, you know, it's far more visible, like the racial divide, because there will be like the um, indigenous community living on, you know, what's called a reservation by the government outside of the town. So that's more explicit. But in Vancouver, like, um, if you grow up here, there's a lot that's like kind of concealed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I hope some of that came, came through in the book. Anyway. Yeah. I, th- I found it interesting kind of um, reading Vancouver for beginners and we all need to eat back to back. Cause it got into some interesting, uh, it got me thinking about kind of home and hometowns and, mm-hmm. um, and nostalgia and memory too, like all those kinds of, words that have a lot of feeling and meaning behind them yeah totally and uh, i mean your family is uh, originally from um the ukraine is that correct yeah yeah um so um my jewish yeah family is from um like ashkenazi communities in ukraine yeah and that comes up and we all need to eat yeah how or much comes did... up for the character <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna ask how much is is uh, fiction and nonfiction with Soma's uh, Jewish family. Well, you know, my honest answer is that it's hard for me to say. Yeah, because um, it's impossible for me to know everything that people construct in their mind out of those stories. Mm-hmm. And so when people ask me. Um, you know how how much of it is fiction and nonfiction. It's hard for me to know what they're asking about. Like my my Jewish fa- side of my family, I'm half Jewish, 
is um is from there and definitely i draw from like the like the emotional stuff is true that mm-hmm. that is autobiographical like of coming like you know family coming from an area where like the jewish communities were lost to the holocaust um you know it's a really really brutal history in the ukraine if you ever feel like <laughs> reading about it make yourself a nice cup of tea <laughs> brace yourself um but um in terms of like the facts there's a lot in the book that um obviously as i write a story and i'm not writing a memoir you know as i write fiction i make a lot up yeah you know from the dialogue to the situations to you know various characters but i've never actually gone through and you know highlighted this is factual this is not factual you know Mm -hmm. but yeah but the emotional drive um of that character in like particularly in that central story is yeah is based on my my own experience yeah which i think is like fairly obvious people like assume that i'm like yeah it's obvious (laughs) (laughs) i do love to eat i need to eat yes (laughs) the the part of me the person in me who loves to eat and loves to cook just I totally loved uh, the sandwich artist. I thought that was such a great story. Mm. Oh, thank you. Yeah, there was just some really beautiful images. Like, I think there was a moment where Soma was peeling the potatoes and you captured the, like, the peels cascading onto the cutting board or something. It was just very, very poetic and very beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, the book is obsessed with food. (laughs) I will say that, like, in that book, because people ask me, why is it called We All Need to Eat? And um, the, where I got that title is that this is like an expression I've heard a number of times in the context of family where, mm-hmm. you know, someone, you know, will have done something like really kind of corrupt or like shady or just kind of ins- unsavory. And the expression response to that is like, well, we all need to eat like, you know, the yeah. kind of sense of like, we all need to get by. Yeah. Um, and so that's like literally where that title comes from. Cause like, I mean, I find that fascinating, like just the way that people <laughs> respond to or like get through their lives. But then also in the book, um, so many like important, crucial scenes happen around food and gatherings around meals. Like, so for example, there's the story about Soma's close friend who's committed suicide and -hmm. everyone gathers around this like ramshackle like wake buffet where there's like the Safeway giant wheel of free or something like that and I noticed that was happening throughout the book as well yeah because I wrote both of these books over several years simultaneously yeah 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 and I think too that that ties to like to family and and all those home experiences too right where especially I think of my my grandmother and she was always like you know she would bring out sweets every time anyone was over because everyone had to eat all the time (laughs) yeah and there's something about that generation too yeah and the constant offering food to people like even if you're full you could probably still stuff a little more (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a cultural thing, and 
I mean, anyone who's, like, been on rations or anything like that who comes from a culture where there's, like, food was limited or food was, you know, special or, you know, sometimes you didn't have food, there's going to be that reaction of, you know, look what I have. Are you hungry? (laughs) When Soma and Melanie, I think it's in... uh who you start with is who you finish with. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of memory nostalgia in there, but just in the, in the grieving and thinking about her grandmother, I think there would probably, maybe I'm just connecting to my own feelings of my own grandparents passing and those memories, those warm memories you have of that person. Yeah. I think that, um, Soma's relationship with her grandmother in, um, and who you start with is who you finish with, which if anyone's listening who hasn't read the book is about her, the very complicated relationship with her grandmother um, after her death um, and her grandmother's family was like, you know, deeply altered by the Holocaust. Um, I think that um, there is that element of, um, being powerfully drawn to the past. Mm-hmm. And I think it's out of a need to understand the past because so much has not been explained. Mm-hmm. So particularly in terms of her grandmother having this like very deep connection with this person and also feeling like there's this these truths that are walled off. And I think that that produces a sense of um, like longing in Soma to like understand and to like hold hold that and have like access to it um i think that the grandmother you know and the stories in both you know first person they kind of it's kind of duet they go back and forth in first Mm -hmm. person for the grandmother i think that there is this response of like no you should turn away from you know trying to um like go deeply into the past because um like it's so dark and there's nothing for you there Mm -hmm. um so for me I think in terms of um nostalgia that would probably be like Soma wishing for something that was never really there or never really was possible right of having Mm -hmm. this like ideal kind of resolved (laughs) relationship with her grandmother and their culture. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I can totally see that. I see that as part of Soma's, like there is this kind of naivete to Soma, right. In that story mm-hmm. where she's like, I'm going to learn the Kaddish prayer and it's going to make a difference. And yeah. really what you learn through the story from Charna, the grandmother's point of view um, is like that. Her message is very much like, this all happened, um, like everything was destroyed, and like the message is like we need to like move like move forward. And they're both they're both unresolved narratives, right? There's no mm-hmm. resolution of, you know, she receives this wisdom from her grandmother and she continues. It's more like the reader sees how in two different generations both are unresolved and they're unresolvedness <laughs> to coin a term 
is like in conversation with each other and so there's just this going to be this ongoing flux yeah that's how that's how i would in a very rambling way (laughs) say that um but i think that's yeah that's a really interesting a really interesting point that like we all need to eat in vancouver for beginners have a very i think they have different relationships with the past i think Mm -hmm. vancouver for beginners is much more overtly critical and we all need to eat is more kind of unresolved and wanting mm-hmm. yeah i think that's really that's an interesting thing to compare um yeah it's always easier to be uh critical and distant from things that aren't family <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's it, when you said um when you talked about soma's longing to kind of have that uh, resolution with her past and her family's um experiences it, i kind of had this like aha moment of you know how much longing there is in in that book in general of her kind of longing for some kind of belonging and longing to uh she seems to long to like have a different outcome for her family too like her her brother and her father as well there's seems to be a lot of that now that I think of it (laughs) yeah I think that's true I think that um you know something that I've experienced again and again in writing fiction um and like I continue to write to to write fiction and actually I I mean, I primarily, this is going to sound like so pretentious, but I primarily self-identify as a short fiction writer. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I mean, I know that I've published in like different genres and I'm working on a novel now, like I mentioned, but like, I really like short fiction is really my first love. And I just like love short fiction as a form so much. And I'll like fight to the death for like why it's like such an amazing artistic form. (laughs) So if anyone is interested in such a death life, I'm joking. So um, I can help connect people. If yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. This be the BC Book Prize podcast. Yeah, club. battle. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to like call out some people on air right now. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but like this is something I think I've also like struggled with in my fiction is um, plot. And this idea of having um, stories with um, forward motion and with some form of ending. I think that um, I very much write fiction that is very preoccupied with the psychology of characters. And I tend to write about characters who are like very conflicted and who are struggling with something Mm -hmm. and so and I have this is like you know I mean like all the way through my writing so I think for me um yeah like definitely your observation that she's always longing for something that's definitely I think it's definitely true that there's something about the characters in like in this book and um in my previous book of stories where you know people the the story never ends right i mean stylistically in terms of form you know it will end but in terms of the psychology of the characters uh, um yeah there isn't that 
there isn't that like satisfaction of like the tied up ending you know yeah um yeah soma even like turns down the spontaneous engagement thing on her marriage thing on the beach yeah (laughs) (laughs) because she's i don't know there's something also about soma that like yeah she's very (laughs) self-sabotaging kind of makes me laugh someone like said to me about this book of stories someone at a reading like um an audience member i love this book but like you know, Soma, like, she's kind of a loser. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, oh, she just has all these, like, dumb jobs. And, like, she's kind of, like, you know, just never happy. And and I was like, oh, like, that's really true. <laughs> I never looked at it that way. Like, she sort of works in a passport office. And she <laughs> works as a line cook. And, you know, but I hadn't even looked at the book in that way. Like, this is someone who's... You know, she's just so consumed by her emotions that she really just drifts through her life yeah. in a way, you know? Yeah. But I think there's something Poor that I Soma. really... <laughs> I, I kind of identified with Soma. I think we've all had moments like oh, that totally. where we're just, like, kind of untethered and drifting and in our own heads. Yeah, for sure. And I think that that's something that people really relate to in the book because, like... Like, um, I've had, like, um, Jewish um, people my own age message me on Twitter and stuff being like, hey, I just wanted to let you know how much I identified <laughs> this book. And, <laughs> like, I saw so much of myself in Soma. And, like, yeah, we're totally, like, this <laughs> group of people connected by, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, just, like, uh, perseveration. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. And but I wonder, I too, of... sometimes oh, go it's, it's a generational thing, too, right? Like... Oh, totally. It's a totally a generational thing. Um, I mean, I graduated from undergrad the year that the economy tanked. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, like, definitely. Like, I think that for, um, like, millennials, I, I fit in the millennial bracket. Um, there has been... Um, a kind of a nihilist <laughs> sense of like um, you know not being able to have you know the security that we were sort of told we were going to have and um, having to just sort of proceed anyway and many people like oh like over my 20s and early 30s watching so many people get like so profoundly stuck because financially they just couldn't um do what they would have otherwise have done if the economy was healthier and that yeah that is like hugely affected the culture of the generation i just read jenny odell's book how to do nothing um have you heard of this book i haven't no so it's about she's a conceptual artist and it's a book about the attention economy so which is the idea that our attention that we give to like online stuff is now this like commodity that you know facebook and twitter make lots of money off of yeah and that she argues that the only way for us to like regain our sense of self and like presence is to try to um divest as much as possible from the attention economy and it really struck me that it's like the millennial version of like the 60s thing of like tune was it tune out drop out tune in drop out yeah yeah, it's kind of like that, but it's happening again. Yeah. And um, 
yeah, there's like this deep malaise that people have of like feeling like kind of like you have to perform all the time and yet you can never really get ahead. Yeah. Which is totally like a Soma, poor Soma's complex. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. But I I also get that feeling in, in bank. I know it's not about a person in particular, but in Vancouver for beginners, there's that feeling. I think I started to feel it when I lived in Vancouver too, where that the younger generation who is kind of becoming adults in Vancouver were feeling like they were kind of being handed this different version of the city than what other people had had. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. And that's something about growing up in Vancouver, like I said, and like watching it change so much that like actually so much of Vancouver is kind of unrecognizable to me Mm -hmm. in some ways um like there are streets you could walk down where like I think about like walking down Granville Street I walk down Granville Street downtown all the time because I work downtown and um you know it's like it's it's bizarre like I can map that whole street in my mind of what was there like there was the Capital Six Theater and across from it was this other theater and like I, like, I remember, like, all that stuff, and now it's, like, just been changed into these, like, pretty awful stores. And, yeah. um, and do you remember that, like, really terrible art project where they had all those plastic trees? Oh, yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll never get over that strange, like, deeply strange piece of public art they have down near the Marine um, Drive Skytrain Station. <laughs> I don't think I know that one. Giant golden stump. Oh yes, I do know that one. (laughs) (laughs) Like, which just seems like the person who installed that and be like, why? (laughs) It seems like an insult to the city, really, to point out like, oh, this is what would have been here, and now there's just a golden stump version of it instead. (laughs) I know, and it's like, yeah, it's like I don't think that this is Poco Emily Carr. I think this is just like clueless developer bling. (laughs) Yeah. It's bit, like every time I drive by there, I'm like, "What the hell is up with that?" <laughs> <stuff>? <laughs> See, yeah, Vancouver is it's very it's very odd. Like, it's a very odd place to have watched change or something. I think quite surreal about aspects of how it's changed. Like, like I remember like the Olympics when they built the um, like Olympic Village. Mm-hmm. you know and like I, I still feel like that's like a fake <laughs> like a fake place like it feels like there. a movie set every time I walk by like it doesn't feel like a real thing it's really strange like yeah and then like all the I don't know Vancouver is this weird mix of like ambition and I don't know <laughs> hollowness I'm not sure yeah, it's it's a it's like a very contradictory place. Yeah, that I think is very misunderstood actually in Canada. Yeah, yeah, because I know when I was at the BAMP Center a few years ago, I love the BAMP Center. I've also taught there, and I was sitting with this group of people, and these writers from Toronto were saying, "Oh, Vancouver just feels so far away. It feels so far away." 
it's like you know on the edge of the country you never know what's going on so far from the center and um a writer i don't know if she'd want me to use her name um but she's like a very established novelist who's from vancouver said no vancouver is its own center Mm -hmm. and i remember thinking yeah like totally that really rang true for me as someone who's like from here and grew up here that you know when i go to toronto and i come back to vancouver i feel like i'm coming back to my center as opposed to like people i think maybe go to toronto and feel like they're going to the hub i think that there's like this particular vancouver thing of like of like the coast being its own culture yeah 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 and i think it's interesting that there's books like like yours and Sam Weebs and it seems like there's maybe a, a shift happening where people are proud to have their books set in Vancouver when maybe that wasn't the case before where you know it's you don't have to make everything set in even Seattle seemed slightly more cool than Vancouver for a while it was okay to write a bit about Seattle but not Vancouver but it seems like that's shifting which maybe will change people's perception of it at the same time I agree yeah um I think that also in Vancouver like in terms of like the poet poetic tradition there have always been writers um who've written Vancouver like I think of Lisa Robertson mm-hmm. who wrote um um it's the soft architecture book seven like walks for soft architecture now I want to Google it because I feel so guilty that I can't remember the name of this book <laughs> that I adore. Terrible. Um, one second. Okay. Soft <laughs> architecture. I'm actually like physically Googling this on my phone. Um, occasional work in seven walks from the office for soft architecture. Lisa Robertson. I mean, that's like a wonderful um, book of poetry about Vancouver that's like super oblique um and i also think of um meredith quartermain's like vancouver walking and i think mm-hmm. of like sachiko mirakami's work her poetry that engages a lot with vancouver yeah um i think a lot of like the indigenous writers who've written about um who've written about vancouver as well Mm-hmm. Um, like I know for years, Joanne Arnott organized that in like Aboriginal writing collective here. So, but it's interesting that maybe, yeah, maybe poetry is always a little bit like outside of kind of the mainstream. Thanks so much to Alex for the great chat. We actually spoke for almost an hour, so that's why there's a bit of an abrupt ending. I tried to give you the juiciest morsels of our conversation in under 40 minutes. So that's another episode of Writing the Coast. Thank you so much for listening. To find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit the website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. Also be sure to follow the prizes on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. To keep in the loop about new episodes, and you will want to be in the loop about new episodes because I have some great guests coming up, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And in my upcoming episodes, you're going to hear conversations with Eve Lazarus. We talk about true crime and murder 
and I'll also be discussing uh, Mama Sketch, which is the beautiful book by Daryl J. McLeod. So until we meet again here on the Cyber Airwaves, uh, happy holidays and happy reading.